Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. It is November the 23rd, 2021. It is a Tuesday that we're recording on. This is your Chelsea Women Weekly feature for this week. It is Thanksgiving week in the USA. That's what we're recording from today and so forth. So no one is working except for yours truly. Boom. All right. So welcome aboard, everyone. Please smash a like on this video. Please subscribe. Please share on your social media, wherever you have this. If you're listening to this uh, on a podcast and you may want to, (laughs) because this yellow shirt might be blinding. Uh, So please uh, do a five-star review. Please subscribe and so forth. uh, And so forth. I'll talk about yellow shirts uh, later on. But but today, again, your Chelsea Women Weekly feature, we have Rob Prattley back from the CFCW Social back to review the last week for Chelsea and so forth. But there are a couple of other items I want to bring up um, prior to getting into these matches and so forth, because you know, kind, of, kind of big news on one of them and, and a kind of update on another. So Sam Kerr signs a new contract, Rob. <laughs> Um, There had been much talk and some speculation whether or not Sam Kerr was going to sign another contract where she was potentially going to go. She's going to go back home. I mean, all sorts of things. And then then all of a sudden, surprise, boom, uh, I get photos on Twitter with her signing a contract to what, 2025? Is that right? 2024, but there is an option to extend Uh, again. Yeah. Okay. So your reaction, Rob, to... Sam Kerr uh, signing this new deal with Chelsea. I mean, it came as a little bit less of a surprise to me because I was aware that negotiations have been going quite well. Um, Certainly, I think it's been difficult in the last 18 months for Sam Kerr, especially with travel restrictions that have been taking place. But obviously, now that we see that they're easing and the fact that the... um, women's calendar shall we say is skewed in a way that there are ample opportunities especially during international breaks in order to be able to sort of fly out and um go and sort of see family and friends and also the fact that it sounds like um some of uh said family and friends may indeed be sort of settling themselves in England it made it much easier I think from that perspective I think there's also um, it has to be noted, like, you know, clearly there is the element of liking playing in the Chelsea side. I mean, you watch Sam all the time. She's playing. She looks very, very happy, very content. I can understand why you would be. I mean, you know, I, I think there's probably something in the contract somewhere that says if Frank Kirby extends, you have to extend two. I don't think you're legally now allowed to play them without each other on the same pitch. I think mm-hmm. it's probably illegal now. Um, and I think, you know, it was, it's one of those where it's sort of the right player at the right time in the right squad. And I think, you know, Chelsea, from a Chelsea sort of perspective, if you have a world-class striker who wants to renew, you're going to, you know, renew it because you want them to stay and you want to keep a player in, you know, who's in fantastic form. Absolutely. And um, and so since I'm not necessarily in the know as well as you, and, that, and that's probably a good thing, good thing, um, you know, so it, it kind of, um, it didn't necessarily catch me by surprise, but I was like, you know, I just thought immediately that it was incredibly good news um, for Chelsea, for Chelsea fans, for Sam Kerr herself. I mean, it was just great news uh, to, to have that, um, that solid solid piece in place, um, you know, moving forward. And so that ends the speculation uh, for about her future um, and so forth. So, uh, you know, that 
did it to me was a big deal. Um, so moving on from that, you know, um, just for the sake of time, y'all, um, you got the FA Cup final coming up on the first weekend in December. So it's coming out really fast. And by the way, we're planning on uh, doing a special, um, you know, special show to talk about the FA Cup final between Chelsea and, and Arsenal. This is your, um, what I call the wraparound FA Cup from last year into this year. So it's the 2021 FA Cup. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. the 2021-22 one is, a, is I think, already started. Um, but, um, or it's been plotted out. So um, we're going to have a special show sometime during the international break, uh, right before that, that particular match. But um, what's the, I, I've been hearing a lot about the, the ticket situation in terms of how many tickets have been sold, how many tickets have been sold by, by the, the two clubs uh, on their own. What does that look like? And, and are, are they moving towards a particular target of, of tickets sold? Yeah. So, I mean, there's been at least 30,000 um, sales that was confirmed sort of, uh, last uh, last week um, and last weekend. And the club is still aiming to sort of move that up further and further. I know that Chelsea, from their perspective, have um, uh, sort of a organised group of sort of fans that are around sort of 2,000 in number that are definitely going to be sort of sitting uh, together in the same area. There's also, you know, a significant number more that are going to be interspersed. One of the nice things about the Women's FA Cup final is you do have separate ends, but you also do have neutral zones. So that if you know, if you are a fledgling fan of women's football and you are in the UK, um, I would really recommend going to see it. Tickets aren't that expensive compared to other major cup finals. Obviously, it will be a unique chance to see an FA Cup final in December. I don't think it's ever going to happen again. I hope it's never going to happen again um, because it's happened due to the disruption that we've seen in the last eighteen months and. I think it's probably worth noting that, um, yeah, it should be a fantastic sort of spectacle. I think you've got Chelsea obviously gunning for revenge against Arsenal after the opening day loss. You've got the subplot that how will Arsenal cope in a very big match about Leah Williamson. And, you know, I, I hope she does recover soon because I think she's, a, as I've said before, she's the best ambassador for not only Arsenal women, for Arsenal Football Club. She embodies what the club is all about and is fantastic to fans, to journalists alike. Um, so, you know, is, is really one of the people who I have an awful lot of time for, as well as for the Lionesses. I think she, you know, she's been named captain in recent squads and I think she would be my personal choice for a uh, new national captain as well. Um, but enough of me, uh, I can't get too heavy praising Arsenal players. Um, it's, uh, yeah, I, I think, you know, you'll see the interesting aspect of that. You've got um, sort of, you know, Sam Kerr, I'm sure, will be looking to make a mark in a major final. Will it be Vivian Miedemeyer's last FA Cup final? Will she want to, you know, bow out on a high? It's a chance for a first trophy um, in England, Fiona Seideval, or a chance for Emma Hayes to, you know, continue cementing her incredible legacy. So there's so many great subplots that have sort of come out of it. And, you know, I know the Chelsea fans will make a racket. I'm I'm looking forward to hearing the Arsenal fans make more of a racket than they did at the Emirates at the beginning of the season. Um, it was particularly quiet when, when we were there. So, uh you know, there was only fan noise coming from one set of fans. So there's my there's my call out to Arsenal fans: make more noise, um, because I know the Chelsea, you know, the Chelsea fans will be. And yeah, it just, it's just hopefully will be a fantastic game. And as I, as I've said before, all major games. I really hope we're talking about the game afterwards and not about decisions or officiating. That is my only thing. I don't, you know, losing a cup final sucks. I'm not going to pretend it doesn't. I've been on you know, the winning sides and losing sides before. But I really hope we can focus on, you know, what should be a fantastic spectacle of football rather than on, 
you know, officiating. Um, I see the referee has been named for the game. I would like at this point to wish her, you know, the best of luck. Refereeing an FA Cup final is the pinnacle of career for um, British referees, in my opinion. I think there's no, you know, better way to say it. And I'm I'm confident that she herself will be prepared to have a fantastic game, you know, in front of a fantastic crowd and be a fantastic, you know, spectacle for women's football again. Absolutely. And and again, as a reminder, we will uh, we, we are planning to schedule uh, a show with uh, with you, Rob, and with Josh, with the Islington Gazette, who covers Arsenal women uh, to kind of talk a little bit, dig a little bit, di- dig a little bit deeper into this into this match with all of those massive subplots. Um, there's a lot to really talk about as a preview for that match coming up next week. So where uh, the show will probably hopefully we'll record next week if we can get everything together, including technology, but also that you're not over with the referee situation. Yeah, that was a big call that was in the original match, uh, you know, the first game of the season that went, you know, went, was clearly an offside call uh, that went against I, I, I'm not there. specifically, just, I, will, I will just say, because uh, I can see why that could have, you know, sounded bitter there. I, I will not say I'm specifically not referring to that. I'm saying more in general. I mean, I watched the games mm-hmm. over the right. weekend. In the, in the mm-hmm. Chelsea-Birmingham game, there were some decisions that were absolutely, utterly baffling. that weren't particularly biased, were just strange decisions. I watched the Arsenal um, match as well against Manchester United. And again, there were some decisions in that game where you looked at them and you wondered how on earth they'd come to those calls. And they weren't particularly biased, but it did just spoil the occasion, spoil the, not spoil the match in a way, um, but just one of those where you, you sort of look at it and you hope that... I, I do, yeah, as I said, I do hope on the day it's a focus on the football rather than on anything else. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, you... We, we've been over this territory and we really don't want to have to go back over the same territory again. So um, in terms of, you know, having a situation where something is decided on a, on a call that makes no sense, um, you know, so hopefully we will not have any discussions about referees after that particular final. Um, and just, but honestly, I'm a little worried <laughs> so about it uh, given the state of affairs, but hopefully I'm crossed my fingers, you know, uh, and I wish, Wish them the best of luck coming up. All right, so let's jump to the, these two games, and and uh, I don't know necessarily, you know, too many major subplots in, in either one of them. Let's start with uh, the, the Champions League group stage match, uh, which was kind of interesting from the standpoint of what the result was. But then if you kind of dig a little bit further, you kind of understand what the result was. Um, this was the game, you know, uh, with uh, Servette, um, you know, that was, um, and this was at. Where was this held? This was at King's Meadow. Meadow. Okay, and um, so what? What were your thoughts? I mean, the game ended one nil. It was a you know a late goal uh, at the end. At the end, um, or was it a late goal? There was a one goal in this match. Oh, it was it was at sixty seven minutes. Sam Kerr gets a goal from uh, Frank Kirby. Of course, you know you mentioned earlier it's almost illegal to have them not play. At I, the same I, I time. believe it's not legal. <laughs> I believe it's not legal to name one in the starting eleven without the other one. So what are your, what was your reaction to this match? What did you think of this match? I mean, Sam Kerr again comes through and gets the winning goal, 1-0, three points, you know, um, and, you know, well on the way to qualification for the next round. What were your thoughts? I think this game and also actually the other game in the group were beautiful examples of why um, this year's UWCL, why the, uh, the UCL in general is an amazing, interesting tournament. Because the week before, we saw Chelsea go away to Savet and completely trounce them. You know, they won 7-0. It could have been more. In this game, Savet had a different approach, had a very different game plan. 
and got a very different result. We saw it against Arsenal playing Kurgan the um, night before. They came and gave, I thought, both games gave a really good account of themselves. Okay, they lost by significant margins in both games. But I thought they gave great accounts of themselves. And, well, I'm not going to say they deserve to win, but it was great to see a team, you know, coming and giving a go. In Savet's case, they were more interested in trying to preserve, you know, and not being absolutely thrashed. And again, there's nothing wrong with that either. I think it's important to note, I don't expect and I don't think, you know, any more credit would be given to Savet if they'd come, played expansive football, played open games and been torn apart and lost 7-0. I certainly would not be praising them more. I was delighted to actually see them come and try and break, like make things difficult for Chelsea. I will say I think Chelsea looked a bit tired and leggy. Um, I think that's expected due to the amount of travelling, the fact there was such a long run of you know away games, then followed by sort of a first home game in a long time. Um, but I think it was also important to note that it was sort of the sort of game where Chelsea needed to get the job done and they got the job done with relevant ease. Savet had a few half chances in the second half. Sakira Musovic made a few saves, but it wasn't as if she was, you know, put in some sort of barnstorm and goalkeeping performance. In the end, it was the sort of game where once Chelsea got one, they were just in so in control. They should have probably doubled the lead. They missed big chances. Lauren James came on for her debut and missed a couple of big chances. But in reality, it was more about getting the three points because Juventus and Wolfsburg, um, obviously Juventus coming up with the really big result and winning in Germany, um, which perhaps wasn't expected. They did also have some injuries during the game Juventus. So it really did open up the group. And I think it now leaves it in a really fascinating perspective. Obviously, you've got Savet, who I think will be keen to avoid another big home defeat and will be keen to play for pride in their final two games as they bow out. Wolfsburg and Juventus and Chelsea now. Well, Chelsea are in the driving seat to finish top of the group. But if they do slip up in the next home game against Juventus, then suddenly it blows it wide open. Uh, Wolfsburg will expect to beat Savet and then suddenly it comes down to a final game showdown against Chelsea. And, you know, there's the sort of, it almost seems written in the stars that Panilla Harder is going to go back to Wolfsburg and knock them out of the UWCL. Aside that I've had so much, you know, pedigree and prestige and so respected in the tournament and also so feared by Chelsea in the past. I said this last year that getting the result against them was getting the monkey off the back and getting that fear factor out of the system of playing the team that over the last decade, besides Le- have been, you know, the runners up to Leon on so many occasions and have been so dominant. And yeah, I just think it was important for Chelsea to get the result. Keeping a clean sheet is obviously also nice. And I think it just means that momentum ticks on because slipping up against Savet would have made it a very difficult final two games against two very difficult opponents. Whereas now they go into the game against Juventus knowing that if they get the job done at Kings Meadow, they can afford to maybe rotate for the game away at Wolfsburg. Juventus won't want that themselves. They will want to get a result at Kings Meadow because then that will stop Chelsea being able to rotate. So it's a really, really finely poisoned, fascinating group. Well, I think... um, um... Obviously, Juventus did Chelsea a huge favor by beating Wolfsburg. Um, you know, in in their in their match, Wolfsburg, had, you know, been struggling a lot with you know with injuries and consistency and so forth throughout the season so far, um, and so forth. But yeah, they're now in danger of being knocked out. 
Um, so very interesting subplot at the end there. But also the other thing that you know you you pointed to the uh, the fact that this you know this tournament is very interesting and and I think it's very important for teams uh, that you probably would not normally see playing in the Champions League type of situation, being able to play against teams like Chelsea or teams like Arsenal or teams like Wolfsburg or, or Leon, which they may have not normally had a chance to even play against twice during a, during a uh, tournament. Um, I think it's great experience for these type, these very, very considered smaller clubs, uh, quote unquote, to play, you know, sort of the, the big, the big ones um, and have that experience and learn, learn how to play against clubs like that and, and be able to say, yeah, you know, we were able to, we got thrashed one match, but then we changed everything around and just looked at it a different way and played differently and uh, did be- did better overall. Um, so I think that's important. Well, so I love group stages for that, where you get teams playing off against one another that you normally wouldn't see um, in these other clubs get that experience. So what did Servette do differently, though, that made it more difficult for Chelsea? I think in all honesty, it was partly what, you know, partly what Savet did, but also partly what Chelsea did. I'll start with Savet. They made it, they made the spaces compact. In the first game, they tried to play quite an open, expansive game, and that sort of played into Chelsea's hands because ultimately Chelsea have better players. In the second game, they had a very strong bank of four at the back. They had a five-person midfield and one striker up front doing the work. When they had the chances to break out, the wingers were also getting forward a little bit and sort of shuttling in. But when you've got those nine players effectively all in one space and the striker dropping back, it makes it so very hard to go through the middle. It's so congested and passes need to be inch perfect. And you get an element of that is that if players get one or two of the passes wrong, they start getting frustrated, they try and force things. Or alternatively, they get comfortable in possession and just keep possession but without really hurting and they're just probing and passing it around and that's fine too. From a Chelsea perspective I think the issue was that there was a lot of rotation and also players came in who in all honesty didn't really do themselves justice. There are players there who wanted more minutes and wanted more chances on the pitch. People like Jon Anderson, Beth England etc who had a chance to come in and impress and didn't really do it. And I yes. think that's the mm-hmm. you know critical thing is that Chelsea's goal came from their two most consistent performers who are you know mm-hmm. regularly starting, not from someone else coming in and you know really stepping up and shining. And Chelsea looked infinitely better when they brought the regular performers on rather than when they had more rotated players. Right. Um, yeah, and that's you know it's interesting you know, that you say that because, you know, that's kind of what I was thinking as well is that these players are, you know, given, given an opportunity that a game like this presents um, and really didn't, um, I mean, I wouldn't, I don't want to be harsh at all, um, but they didn't perform, I guess, to expectation, I would say, you know, Um, so that, that's a good point. And yeah, the two most consistent players, you know, ended up coming through, which is, kind of what you expected. What did you think, though, of um, Mielda in her first start from coming back from injury? I thought she was her usual calm, composed, mm-hmm. sort of very consistent self. She reminds, in a way, uh, the way I like describing her, Mielda is sort of the uh, women's team's version of Cesar Espelacueta. You can put her anywhere, you can put her in any position, in any formation, and she just delivers consistent, calm, quality performances. She's always getting that 7 out of 10 as a minimum. And I think it's really interesting to see now her in a back three, because I think probably, in my opinion, she would be 
in my first choice back three for Chelsea. Um, possibly in the middle of the back three. I think she can play that role really well, or alternatively on the right-hand side of the back three, um, because I think she just adds that extra calmness and that solidity. And I think it's also always worth noting she's an excellent penalty taker as well, and that's always beneficial to have on the pitch. Absolutely, yes. Uh, you mentioned earlier that um, you know Lauren James had a uh, had an opportunity as well coming in um, as a sub. Uh, you mentioned that she missed several opportunities. What what did you what else did you think overall about her performance? I mean, I think I think it's difficult when you come on for ten minutes in a game like that, where I think by that point Truly. were were down to ten, and you know they yeah. at that point I think they're, they're, they they were trying a little bit to push out, but they went down to ten, and at that point it was more you know let's not it makes make sure we don't just you know implode here because it's quite possible I've seen teams before against Chelsea be 1-0 down and in the final 10 minutes one goes from you know a respectable 1-0 loss suddenly goes to a 4-0 fashion and it looks like you've been completely drubbed and in reality it's just been you run out of steam so I think they did have an element of self-preservation I think in a way she was trying too hard at times um there were a couple of chances she did snatch at there was one she put over the bar there was one from close range that she completely missed I think you know, the main thing will be telling her to calm down. And also as match sharpness and match fitness comes back, you know, those will start going in the back of the net. It's also worth noting there's a big fee involved as a player. You want to get that first one off your back. You want to, you look at Sam Kerr when she started. Sam Kerr at the beginning sort of couldn't hit the proverbial barn door with the banjo. And then by the time, you know, one went in and then suddenly they, you know, start trickling in, you start getting goal involvement and then suddenly you you know one goes in another goes in another goes in another goes in and then you just don't stop scoring exactly and and um yeah i, I there seemed to me that yeah trying too hard is the is the word uh, or is the phrase i would use uh for something like that and i don't necessarily I don't necessarily falter for that because I mean, no, I no, think no. if I were I, in the situation, yeah, I'm not saying that you are. I'm just saying for myself, I'm like, well, you know what? I would have done exactly the same thing. I probably yeah. would have tried too hard. I mean, I go in there for 10 minutes. Uh, this is my first, first thing out of the gate. I haven't been on the pitch before. We're, you know, this is the club I wanted to join. This is everything, all these things, everything that she's had to go through, all that stuff. Mm. And then you're now on for 10 minutes. And so, yeah, you want to do everything possible. You want to get like a hat trick in 10 minutes, really, you know. Um, but in the meantime, you do try too hard. And, and I would have done exactly the same thing. I probably would have tried too hard and, and it wouldn't mm. have come off as well, come off well either. Um, don't, I know, I just totally understand it uh, and so forth. But with that. In, in a way, it reminds me a little bit of Jesse Fleming last mm-hmm. year when she made her yeah. debut when she was coming on yes. she was running so hard and trying so hard and battling for everything but at times you can try too hard and one of i think the big things that separates the true world-class players from the good players is the good players need to try to do spectacular things the world-class mm-hmm. players can do spectacular things without really trying and right. I think mm-hmm. that's the really interesting, you know, to, to me, that's the crux. I think when a player becomes world class is when, you know, you can look at people like Vivian Miedemeyer, for example. Again, I, I like using her as an example as a striker, but Sam Kerr is a similar one as well. Nine times out of ten, you can see them, you know, go one on one and put the one on one away. In that time, they don't put the one on one away. You know that they won't be bothered or affected by it because they know, you know, a harder chance will come along, a bicycle kick, a volley or something, and they will just put it into the top corner. And it's that ability. Or in terms of Fran Kirby, I mean, again, I'm going to talk more about her when we get to the Birmingham game, but Fran Kirby, when you get things, 
where it comes back to you first time and you're just curling it into the top corner because you know you can do it and you know you're going to do that. Whereas more, you know, good players that are still developing or players that, you know, literally just fall into the category of good but not quite world-class need to take that split second to set themselves or need to take that little extra touch. And by that point, they've got a defender around them and the chance might have gone. And I think that's where, you know, Lauren James, if she wants to get, she has that world-class potential. And in a way, she almost needs to channel that energy, not better, that's the wrong word, but channel the energy in a different way to ensure she reaches it. Mm-hmm. And that, and she will be, uh, because of her age and where she's at in her career at this point, she uh, she has an interesting trajectory ahead. And it's going to be very interesting how she pr- progresses uh, from here. Um, you know, so uh, that's going to be an interesting storyline moving forward. Um for that so let's move on to uh, let's move on to Birmingham speaking of spectacular performances um you know that seemed somewhat effortless <laughs> um that seemed to be the case uh with with Birmingham uh your your initial thoughts about the result the result ended up being uh five nil for Chelsea mm-hmm. Sam Kerr gets a hat trick in the first half um you know game starts out with a Fran Kirby goal uh ends with a Fran Kirby goal um you know, it, you know, it was uh, it ended up being kind of the thrashing I think people expected. But what were your thoughts? I, I'm going to surprise people here um, because I said this to some people at the game and people were shocked me. I didn't think Chelsea played very well. Um, I thought that it was a game where there were so many chances where Birmingham. But let's all right. Firstly, let's put some context to Birmingham losing the manager midweek can't have made it easy. And you know, it's not. I don't think it's fair to say it's the players' effort. It's not an issue with effort for the players. They've knocked down tools for the management. It's just simply not being on the same level. And I feel sorry for some of the younger players at the club, especially because it can't be easy every single week after week to be going into games and going into them and getting, you know, not just beaten, but being beaten so comprehensively. Um, Chelsea in the first half to me, there were so many times where they had situations where they gave the ball away sloppily and Birmingham just didn't have the ability to do anything because of the quality of their players. But against better sides, they'd have been punished. There was um, several of them, like transitions on the halfway line, that if it had been a Wolfsburg or a Juventus, that's going to end up in a clear one-on-one. And to me, that was sloppy. Um, I will say from an attacking point of view, I think at times, especially after the first goal, it became a case of let's try and get Frank Kirby to 100 um, and I think, you know, I appreciate the sentiment of the side, but you need to be more ruthless, especially when you're hunting things down. Um, I know, and Hayes will have told them this, I know she will have said that I appreciate this, but there's no room for sentimentality. Um, it doesn't matter, especially if it's a cup final. It doesn't matter if you win it 3-0 or if you win it 1-0 by the ball deflecting in off the, you know, the striker's knee or by a 30-yard free kick or by a bicycle kick. It's the same thing. I've always said this goal's, you know, the quality of the goal we could admire, but ultimately, at the end of the day, it's the same thing. Um, and, I, you know, I'm aware that people will be listening to this and thinking, God, he's, you know, a ridiculous taskmaster. What on earth does he expect? And I will happily admit that I am about Chelsea women because I know the standards that they reach. I know the standards they reached last season. And I know, you know, to be on that level again, they need to improve and they need to kick on. So having been fairly critical of a 5 mil win, I'll now go on to sort of the more positive um, aspects of it. Firstly, I've, you know, I've mentioned Fran Kirby. Um, the first goal to me was, I think, the most impressive goal of the game. 
and that was because the way the cross was sort of a it was a cross in it was poorly cleared by the defender I think that's fair to say but the way it came back to Fran Kirby and the fact she was able to all in one motion sum up where the goalkeeper was, where the top corner is, and float the ball, just nonchalantly float it past her. And as soon as it left her foot, you knew it was just going to float into that top corner. All the keeper did was turn and watch and look at it and just watch it go in. And I think when you see a moment like that, it's just a, sh- a sign of a player that is at the absolute peak of their power. Obviously not good enough somehow to feature in the FIFA's best list. I, you know, I have to say she's good, but she's no Ellen White, clearly. Um, or no Lucy Bronze, as I, you know, as I tweeted yesterday. I think Lucy Bronze will probably be my favourite for the men's Ballon d'Or at the moment. The amount of PR she seems to somehow be gravitating, um, despite being injured for sort of six months. Um, but... You know, Fran Kirby isn't doing it for personal awards and for personal accolades. She's doing it because she's a world-class footballer at the peak of her powers. Um, And from that point on, I think, you know, the fact that it was an early goal, it set the tone for what the game was going to be like. I said at half-time to one of the people I was with, I hurt my neck in the first half by the amount I was just craning to watch it being played in one half because I don't think I've ever seen it so consistently being played in one half of football. Usually, even in WSL, there are sometimes teams break out but Birmingham just didn't have that ability to break the line at all. The only time they ever got forward was either just by thumping it long, in which case they lost the ball very quickly afterwards, or by Chelsea giving it away cheaply. Um, you know, second goal, uh, Jesse Fleming sort of um, slipping through Sam Kerr. And again, you know, simple rinse and repeat. Very good ball through, but Sam Kerr is a striker. You know, she's probably not even thinking there's a goalkeeper there now. She's just thinking, where's the bottom corner? And that's what it's like. I think that that's what separates, again, as I've said, for world-class strikers, is that they don't see the goalkeeper. And you often hear them talk about this. Is They don't worry about where the goalkeeper is because they know if they're good enough, they'll just get it past them. And they don't have to think about that. And that's where I think, you know, Lauren James, if she needs to maybe calm down a little bit and think is that she knows where the goal is. She knows where the points of the goal are. She doesn't need to think about the goal flying out or flying across or saving it. She needs to just think about rolling it into the empty net or rolling it into the net. Um, but yeah, I think that, you know, that goal was a sore one. And at that point it did really, yeah, then become just sort of, let's try and get Frank Kirby to 100. The third goal I thought was almost comical. Um, the way the ball came across, you know, Kirby completely missing the kick from a yard out, the defender clearing it against her, coming back to her panicking. And then Sam Kerr almost, you know, apologetically putting it in with her sort of left foot at the far post. I, I think that summed up, you know, the, the state Birmingham are in, um, and it's sad to see them like this because it's not, as I've said before, it's not a fault of Scott Booth or I think Darren Carter was interim manager at the weekend, all the players. You know, it's a fault that lies squarely with the ownership and the fact that the owners, you know, need to... And I would like them just to come out and say it and admit they don't care about the women's side if they are going to behave this way. I would like them to do it so they can face due scrutiny and due criticism because they clearly don't. And at the moment, that is what's really sad is that Birmingham themselves are a proud side. You know, this side has qualified for European football before, has played in the Champions League, has won competitions before, and they are going the way. And Liverpool, I I appreciate, are making their way back up this year, but that's because they've got resources that are far too good for the Championship because they shouldn't be there the size of the club they are. Birmingham are the same. They are a massive club, Birmingham City. And, you know, they they deserve to treat their side better. And I think at the moment, especially in the West Midlands, Aston Villa are embarrassing them because Villa, you know, there's a reason why so many players have crossed the divide and it's something, you know, players in men's football dare not do. 
And yet so many of them are so willing to do it in the women's game because of the way they're being treated and the way, you know, the neglect that's being shown to the club. Um, the fourth goal, I, I quite liked the fourth goal, actually, um, from Sam Kerr's perspective, because I think it shows what a real predatory striker she is. Mm-hmm. And there was one similar to that a few minutes, uh, about sort of a few minutes beforehand where there was a shot and it came back to her and she went for the header and headed it just wide. And her reaction to heading it wide, bearing in mind she was on two goals and wanted the hat-trick, her reaction wasn't to get angry. It was just to sit and, you know, which is always smart to and say, well, you know you're better than that. You know you need to do better. And the next time it came through, really good drive from Jess Carter. I think the keeper was a little bit unsighted and surprised. Palmed it back up into the air. And, you know, Sam Kerr, just predatory, absolutely predatory. You knew as soon as that ball bounced up, she was going to put it in the back of the net. And then we finally got to see the thing we all wanted to see, which is the Sam Kerr backflip. Um, I will say in real life, it's spectacular. It's <laughs> a really impressive celebration. Um, mm-hmm. She clearly must hate Birmingham, Sam Kerr, because that's now, I think, three hat-tricks in a row against them um, in the league. She clearly must be an Aston Villa fan. Um, but I think, you know... I think it's worth sort of saying that it was so good, I think, for me, that when the goals went in, a striker that wants to get more and more and just doesn't want to stop. Even in the second half, there was one where a low ball fizzed across and she put it just wide. And her response to that, you could tell she was annoyed that she hadn't put it away. And this was a striker on a hat-trick. or mm-hmm. who a hat-trick. I mean, there are a lot of players when they get a hat-trick, you know, they start showbacking and stuff. In Sam Kerr's case, and I'll say the same for Vivian Miedemar, she is the they are very similar players, whether they'd like to admit it or not, is that they just always want more. And, you know, one goal isn't enough, they want two. Two goals isn't enough, they want the hat-trick. Three goals isn't enough, they want four. And there will be, I'm confident at some point, there will be a game Sam Kerr plays in a competition for Chelsea where she'll score a double hat-trick. You know, the amount of chances she gets and the clinical nature she has, if she's on the pitch for, you know, all the time, she will get a double hat-trick. And then, yeah, it just became... Again, it just then reversed in the second half to being, let's get Fran Kirby 100 goals. Um, I've never seen the team pass it to her quite so much in the final third. I mean, there were situations where Sam Kerr could have gone in one-on-one and, you know, she was deliberately waiting and waiting to pass it into Fran Kirby. Um, I mean, it was quite funny, actually, for the first 20 minutes of the second half, Kirby, I thought, was particularly poor. Um, You know, she couldn't control the ball. She was fluffing chances. She was missing her lines. Um, sort of, you know, giving possession away. And I think, you know, that number was weighing on her a little bit. It was mm-hmm. weighing on her being on 99. I, I can understand that because it's a horrible number to sit on. It's the same as when you're on, say, 49 goals or when you're waiting for your first goal. It's horrible to have that monkey on the back and know you're that close and know you're still that far away. Um, and I think you're seeing it a little bit in um, the uh, with Arsenal, with Nikita Paris. She's on 49 WSL goals and Beth England as well on 49 WSL goals. And they're both missing easy chances that they normally would take and you'd expect them to take. But there's that monkey on the back. But as I said, Lauren James came on as a substitute. She got a sort of good run out again. Her pass through the line, really well-weighted pass to Sam Kerr. And, you know, as soon as Sam Kerr got it, I was I said to the person, she's literally looked for Fran, you know, pulls it back. Fran Kirby's there, puts it into the net. Really nice her to get the 100th, I think, at Kings Meadow in front of the home fans, in front of fans that, you know, really do adore her. It's been a... Obviously, sort of a. If you look back to this time last year, I think when she was really just starting to show that she was getting over pericarditis, and she was really starting to put together that consistent world-class run of form that she has been on, you know, since last summer, um, no, since last December, and I think probably 
you know, kick-started with that game against Manchester City last year in November, where she just ran the show. Um, and I think, you know, that's the that's the stage we're at now. It's just Frank Kirby, you know, Frank Kirby is consistently delivering world-class performances and people call her the English Messi for a reason. And she deserves that, you know, that accolade. She is a player at the peak of her powers playing as well as she is. She is the club record goal scorer. I'm confident, you know, she will end up somewhere near 150, 160, 170 um, in the next couple of years quite easily. And yeah, I, I think, you know, talismanic is the thing. Um, the connection with Sam Kerr, e- even if she isn't scoring goals, the connection that she has with Sam Kerr is unbelievable for assisting one another. And yeah, it was, you know, it was written in the stars, I think, for Kerr to assist it because you, you always knew she wanted to do it. You always knew she was sort of, you know, every opportunity was going for it. And yeah, I think, you know, that sort of, that, that really sums up the game sort of quite nicely in all honesty. Um, Birmingham couldn't really sort of do a lot, but I, I don't think Chelsea played brilliantly, but I think they did, you know, enough in order to win it and win it quite comfortably. And it sets them in good stead. They've now not conceded all month. Um, ever since the last international break, not conceding, putting those runner clean sheets together, puts them in really good form and good stead for the FA Cup final. And yeah, I think, you know, that's the, in a way with Arsenal obviously dropping points to um, Spurs and also some of the performances stuttering a little bit. Obviously, they had a, you know, found it difficult to break down Manchester United in the first half. You're starting to wonder is, you know, the mental aspect of it, is there something they're playing into it? And is it Chelsea, you know, starting just to kick on and motor on as we thought they might and are Arsenal starting to feel a bit of pressure? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and we will explore a lot of that uh, in the when we do the preview show, but that is a very, you know, that is a very clear, you know, question or and point that, you know, things seem to be changing in terms of where each team is on and on form. Uh yeah, congratulations to Frank Kirby getting her hundredth goal. Uh yeah, it was pretty obvious that they were trying to get her that one hundred. And uh yeah, you see it all the time when someone is on the verge of getting a milestone or breaking a record or things like that, you just see like way too much effort by the teammates to try to get them the opportunity to do so. You see it in every sport. And then there's also that, as you said before, the monkey on the back of trying to get to that milestone. And then once they get to that milestone, then they're fine. Uh, But it's just getting past that barrier um, and so forth. So, um, but, you know, and then there was just a lot of, you know, um, I mean, I think you made some brilliant points, Rob, in terms of just, you know, what is the difference between a good player and a world-class player in terms of, you know, you know, having world-class players don't even even think about it. They don't even need to even care about where the goalie is. They just think about where, you know, getting it into the net, no matter who the goal can, goalkeeper is. And you just see that with, you know, with both Frank Kirby and Sam Kerr is like, yeah, it's, it doesn't matter who the goalkeeper is with them. It's pretty, it almost seems effortless for, for both of them. Um, and that's what makes it amazing, um, you know, as well. This game actually, though, to be honest, got really painful to watch. Um, because I, I mean, as everyone knows, who's followed me on Twitter, who's watched the show, who's listened to the show knows I have a thing for about clubs that are run well, and I'm purely aghast at teams that are run poorly. And I absolutely despise situations where clubs are run so poorly, particularly on the women's side that you have a situation that you have at Birmingham city. Uh, I was railing against Birmingham City last season. 
um, because of all the infrastructural issues, um, you know, personnel issues, things like that, that were happening. Um, and I totally agree. I feel sorry for the young players that are there, but I don't blame players for skipping off to go to Aston Villa. I'd go to Aston Villa for that matter. Uh, if the situation was so poorly, poorly run. And you hate to see that with a big club like Birmingham City uh, with the pedigree that they have. And and I, I, yeah, I totally wish the ownership would just come forward and say, you know what, we just don't give a rip about this women's team and, and be transparent about it. But no, they're not going to do that. Um, we know they're not going to do that because, you know, why would they? Um, unless, we, oh, well, you know what, it's, it's the right thing to do to be transparent, right? But apparently I don't think they're going to do that. But the point is it, it became painful because, I mean, you just knew that for so many different reasons, this, this squad is going to get completely thrashed in this game at some point. And that's what happened. I was like, you know, this this shouldn't be, really this shouldn't be the situation here. Um, and, and, the, and the frank of the matter is I'm not sure it's going to get much better um, unless, you know, there's a change in ownership or they suddenly, you know, get the, you know, cojones to do something different, um, which I haven't seen that yet. So that's where we are. Um, with that, not to say that, I mean, not to say Chelsea deserved their win. They deserved the three points. I, I kind of compare this game to the Servette game. The reason why is because I think the goal was to get the three points. <laughs> Just get the three points and keep a clean sheet. I think it was the other goal, I think. Uh, keep a clean sheet, get the three points, and keep it moving. Um, we got the international break coming up. Got the FA Cup final coming up. Let's, get, let's have a strong form going into it, which is exactly what, what they got. I don't think – I. You know, if I were Hammond Hayes, I wouldn't have been completely 100% happy with this result. But uh, on the flip side of it, you know, not totally, wouldn't be totally, uh, you know, upset about it either. No. Um, so, um, you know, but the good news is for Chelsea is Chelsea, I think you're absolutely spot on in saying they are moving. Um, yeah, they're, they're, they're gaining better and better form and Arsenal is kind of slipping a little bit. Now the injury bug hit one of their best players, um, knocking them out for, for, for maybe months. Um, so that's a big challenge, uh, ahead. And now there's only one point separating, uh, as it was last week, one point separating the two teams in the league. Um, but it's clearly Rob, isn't it true? Clearly we have a two, two team race now. Yeah, and I think in a way that's a bit. That's actually the disappointing thing I think about this season, is that I hoped it would be a lot more open. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. I think you know credit must go to Brighton and to Spurs, uh, who both I think will be you know they they will keep up there or thereabouts. I think West Ham have improved massively this year. Manchester United continue to blow hot and cold. Manchester City have been very poor. Everton have been very poor. They are the three sides I think you know in the second half of the year that will be looking at it because that third spot I think third place is still up for grabs. Mm-hmm. And I've said yes. this to someone, it, it wouldn't still shock mm-hmm. me if Manchester City did get it. Because mm-hmm. I think with the players they've got coming back, they have world-class players that will return. Uh, Manchester United, if they can bring in the right players in January, will the funds be available? That's another question. But the um, sort of, uh, will the funds be available? Um, I shake my head. I shake my yeah. head on that. I, I, I'm yeah. sorry. Talk about another uh, club I mean, that's not run well. Will, will, will the funds be available is another question. Everton, will Jean-Luc Vasseur, you know, can he get them going where there's a good squad there? It's another question. But I think, yeah. you know, third spot is really up for grabs. But I think, yeah, it's definitely going to be one of, you know, it's going to be Chelsea and Arsenal, I think, far away from the rest by the right. end of it. And I, I imagine they will probably go toe-to-toe by the end of the season. I think people are already 
earmarking that game in February at King's Meadow, you know, with a big red sort of ring around it by saying, this is the day we're going to decide where the WSL goes. Um, I think it's important to note, you know, around that time, Arsenal play uh, Manchester City as well. And Chelsea also have that other game against Manchester City. And by that point, if they've got players back to fitness, they, you know, could potentially have a big say in where the title does go. Yeah, this you know, and, and just to wrap things up, there are two teams clearly at the top. There are two teams clearly at the bottom, and then there's like the rest of the league with a, within earshot of third. I mean, all those teams actually have a you know you have some plausible plausibility because they're so packed in together um, for third, fourth, fifth, and so forth. So you got to be on point. Uh, and so forth. So again, for the sake of time, we're going to wrap things up. Please look at be y'all be on the lookout for that special uh, for the FA Cup final coming up probably probably next week. Well, it's got to be next week uh, to be at this at this great. Uh, but you know, again, smash a like on this video. Please subscribe. Please share on your social media and everything else. Rob, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thank you very much for having me as usual. Absolutely, absolutely brilliant stuff, Rob. I really appreciate it, uh, and so forth. So, y'all, we're gonna go for today. Tomorrow, we're gonna have uh, both Josh on uh, for Arsenal and Mark on for Manchester United. Uh, two different perspectives, I'm sure, uh, on on what happened over the weekend. So, everybody, take care and, and um, enjoy. Also, uh, also, I'd like to say uh, to everyone who's listening, Happy Thanksgiving. Have a fantastic holiday season. Yes, everyone. Yes, if you're listening to us later in the week, which it may be, happy Thanksgiving, everybody, uh, and so forth. So take care. We're going to be on our way. We'll talk to you later on, later on the week.